Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC prelims card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow Fight Analysts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, Connor Rebush. We're here talking about this week's UFC card going down at the Apex facility in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, headlined by a middleweight bout between Jack Hermanson and Joe Pfeiffer with a, uh under undercard that is really prelim card. That is just as filler as it ever gets. This is last year, last week's prelims were, uh, we talked about last week, we had a a funnish main card and then really just nothing in the prelims. Yep. This is, we ran out of nothing, so we are... (laughs) I mean, it's a mix because like the first impression you look at it, you're like, this is absolute uh, vacuum. Mm -hmm. And then you're looking, you're like, okay, there's like names. I know there's some fighters in here that are fun or like weird in an interesting way. It's not truly like last week's prelims where it's just, you know, it's all it's all black ink on Wikipedia. There are two fun prelim fights. But it is. Yeah. That being said, it is still very much uh, – this is, I guess, what the UFC is doing with their Apex cards now. Honestly, I, I if they're going to keep doing these goddamn Apex cards, I guess I support it because, uh, yeah, just like put all the – don't spread the fun fights out, so I got to watch the whole thing to catch them. Yeah, I mean – I can show up two hours late to this, and I'm not going to feel uh, – uh, I'm not going to feel uh, ill done by that. Yeah, I, like the UFC <sighs> – Back when the cards were only 10 fights long. Yeah, that's another thing. What is this, 14 fights again? Yeah, something like that. Oh Back God. when the card fights were only te- cards were only 10 fights long, and when they only put on one or two a month, then it made sense that they didn't really differentiate that heavily between the type of card and where the fights were placed. You know, there was some... Obviously, you had your pay-per-view headliners and whatever, but you were like, oh, man, there's great fights top to bottom on everything. And that was the selling point. But the more fights that they've added, the more and more obvious, and the more cards they've added, the more and more obvious it's become like, yeah, they don't, they can't really sustain. There are just going to be a lot of filler fights that they put together. And they have unfortunately been pretty sloppy with their card construction. Uh, I think just carrying over from this belief of like, oh, you you watch everything on every card mm-hmm. for years now. So like, yeah, you get you know, you you get random heavyweight fights or light heavyweight fights or middleweight fights or whatever, just. 
you know, even in this card, you get Igor Potieria versus Robert Breshik. Yeah. The, the, the third fight on the from the top of the main card. Like, why? It's a terrible fight. So uh, there's middleweight, middleweight to the new hotness. That's why. But they, they at least they're starting to get a a little bit more of an idea. We are really finally starting to see delineation of what a re, a apex fight night card looks like, what yeah. a non apex fight night card looks like, and what a pay per view looks like. And hopefully we can get to a point where they realize. We should put all the really the fights that really just have no interest at all in Apex prelims. Yeah, well, we got to have those fights, of course. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a given. We got to have the fights no one cares about. We can't get rid yeah. of them. Yeah, but let's yeah. put them in the uh, the sort of miserable factory farm. Mm-hmm. That is the Apex. Let's just they, they can each each of these these fighters. They don't need a lot of room to run around. No, yeah, you know, feed them some corn mush. The, the, these 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 fighters are being fed other fighters. This is mad cow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> MM mad cow disease. Yeah, is rampant in the apex. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, if there's one thing you can say about apex cards, is that the rate of prion disease is <laughs> rapidly skyrocketing. Uh, uh, <laughs> so anyway, the prelims suck is what we're saying. Yeah. Um, the, the FDA is going to shut down the UFC. <laughs> yeah, in the next yeah. Few months. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're going to have to hefty. Consumption. Not fit for not not fit for human consumption. <laughs> These are cannery quality fighters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the this is this is the these are the fighters that Taco Bell fills their burritos with. <laughs> it's, it's practically not even real fighter. <laughs> um. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway. The, the featured prelim, so to speak. Yeah. Trevin Giles, Carlos Prates. Hey, this will be fun. You know, Will it? I think so. Carlos Pratas, I enjoy watching. Carlos Pratas looks fun, but Trevin Giles is like Carlos. Trevin Giles is a a great showcase to just get hit with like jabs and kicks. Yeah, I mean it. It will hopefully be fun if the dynamic works out the way it should. But Giles, like one half of this fight, is not fun. Trevin Giles is not a fun fighter. Well, he can be if he's losing. <laughs> I mean, and, and what's he going to do to make it suck? You're you're anticipating he's going to just like try to to wrestle fuck uh, Paratus? Like, no, he's just going to get on his bike. But he's yeah. not that. It, he, it, it's 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 a as with the the Drikas Duplessis joke. I think you made, wasn't it? Yeah, his corner told him to get on his bike, and I posted the goofy old man on the unicycle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's about the level of bike Trevin Giles has. Should have gotten more traction, that tweet. That was a good one. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I mean, like, Carlos Pratis is a pretty quality striker. Yep. He is accurate uh, and efficient, and he's a southpaw with a killer jab. Yeah, and a brutal range kicker. 
Yeah, a great kicker. Yes. And I just think Trevin Giles is too essentially hittable for that not to mean that uh, we're going to see Prada's hit him with some some show-stopping strikes. Yeah, no, I agree with you fundamentally. I just think if Trevin Giles somehow manages to not, like, if Prada's gets some, like, performance opening night jitters or something. Yeah, if, it, if Trevin Giles were to have his way, it could be an ugly fight. Yeah, no fun at all. But I like Pratis, and I think Giles yeah, is a reasonable too. opponent to let him showcase some of the cool stuff he does. Yeah, Giles has for years been a fighter who is not as safe as he thinks he is. And if you can't, if you can take consistent aggression to him, you will find him waiting to be hit and hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if you can't, especially if you can't strike with him, if you cannot be a consistent striker with Trevin Giles, he, he will be very hard to beat. Yeah. You know, you look at the, like, well, James Cross took that fight on a day notice, but like Bevan Lewis, Roman Delidzi, Lewis Cosey, Preston Parsons. Yep. All fighters who are either primarily grapplers and wrestlers or in Parsons case, just can't stop themselves from doing everything. That's a fight yeah. Parsons easily could have won if he'd just been willing to stay in the pocket and punch Giles over and over. Yeah. And, and none of them particularly pleasant to watch, but uh, yeah, yeah Pratis is, I think too crafty, a specialist. Yeah. Pratis uh, is just going to go out there be rangy and especially with this weird reach and weird and kicking it should be primed to take advantage of giles habit of backing away and circling with his hands down with this idea of like oh i'm fine right i i threw a jab and now i'm fine to just lean away where he can get clubbed yeah the the guys who beat um protests and get protests First of all, I think the guys who beat Protest will be also the guys who get him to have boring fights. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be people who take advantage of his tendency to, like, try to maintain distance and corner himself. And, and his, uh, ten, his, his having been a longtime kickboxer before yeah. MMA, he clearly, or alongside MMA, he's been doing this for a minute. He's been doing this since 2012, but... Clearly somebody who's been kickboxing and doing Muay Thai alongside his MMA career. He tends to want to meet uh, grappling and wrestling aggression with an exciting strike. He's He's got that born in, built in. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to stand in the pocket and I'm going to throw a jump knee or I'm right. going to throw a counter hook or something that just gets him taken. He down. has the sort of the, the Kung Fu instructional brain. Yeah. You know, like a lot of strikers um, have, it's basically like strikers have a sort of a Dunning Kruger effect with grappling Mm. where they see it and they're like, well, but I'm so good at striking and this guy's so bad that like, I'm just going to nip all that grappling shit in the bud. Yep. He's going to try to take me down and I'm going to hit him with an elbow. Yeah. And like all the Kung Fu teachers think that they're going to like be wrestler proof because like they're like, well, I'll, I'll bite your neck. Yeah, and, and not yeah. romantically. If you uh, 
if you try to take me down. And then it obviously just never works in practice. Yeah. Protus isn't that naive, but he does. You're right. He has that that impulse to just be like, well, instead of like trying to win the grappling exchange, like or somebody fight like the takedown or fight the takedown, you know, instead of trying to out wrestle this guy like, oh, this is a time for wrestling. I'm going to try to cheat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just nip it in the bud. So there's a there's a path for Giles to go out there and just have an ugly grinding decision win, but I don't think I don't think that'll be that'll I'm happen. not really sure Giles has it in him, you know, I like mean, to, to just do that consistently. Yeah, he can he can be a, a decent wrestler and he can wrestle, yeah, control fighter, but he likes to strike and he has always just have been a defensive blank slate. Yep. So let me put it this way. As long as Pratis is getting some range to work with, this will be yeah. fun. Yeah. Pratis is a fun kickboxer. He is. Pratis opened at minus 195. He's currently at minus 252. Giles opened at plus 173. He's currently at plus 218. All right. That brings us to a fight that will actually probably be all right, even though the dynamics of it make it a, or the, the baseline style clash of it is kind of a bad booking. Mm-hmm. Timothy Kwamba against Bolaji Oki. And um, both guys eight and one, both guys clearly good athletic prospects. Um, I would say Kwamba looks, and like, from the stories about him, he's been, I don't know, what gym is he at? He, uh, let's see, Timothy Kwamba. He grew up in Vegas, they were talking about, and, um, has been, you know, aiming for an MMA career for like, since he was a, a kid, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he seems like a fighter. Okay. He's working with, uh, some of the extreme couture guys. I see him here with, with AJ McKee and Dewey Cooper. And yeah, yep. Yep. So, but he feels and looks like a fighter who has grown up doing MMA. Yes. Which I am always a little cautious of because can be a really good thing, you know, can be a good thing. Can also mean that if you didn't get into a really, really good gym early on, and maybe he did, maybe he's been an extreme couture acolyte since he was a kid. Uh, if you didn't get into a good gym early on, then it could also just mean that you're learning uh, kickboxing from a jujitsu yeah. black belt. Right. You know? Or, you know, just from another MMA fighter. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's just, you know, from an NCAA Division One All-American right. who has just got a coaching gig at an MMA gym or is an MMA fighter themselves and has been doing it long enough to teach people MMA, but not actually specific skills. Yeah. 
I think if you're, I mean, if you're an MMA native and you don't either have access to some kind of, or, or you don't discover a passion that allows you to kind of specialize a bit yeah for like one particular avenue of the game then yeah we you know that we've seen so many of the kind of guy that you're describing like yeah uh pretty broad pretty shallow you know there's guys like like ian gary's an mma native yeah exactly that that dude like not only has good coaching he like knows what kind of fighter he wants to be and like that's what he pours his energy into he's a specialist despite that i so i am a little kwamba's not is what you're saying yeah, I'm I'm a little concerned with Kwamba, mostly because as an MMA native, he is a back foot counterfighter. Yeah. And if you're growing up in the meta of MMA, that ain't it. You yeah. Know? There's a certain type of MMA native counterfighter as well, which is like a guy who doesn't know enough about striking to be happy in striking range, mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, you yeah, uh, is the sort of uh, philosophy. Yeah. Which, which was much more common before the current generation of MMA natives. Yeah. That used to be sort of just what you expected out of MMA striking was let's stand six feet apart. And I hope you screw up first. Yeah. And that's a little bit of what Kwamba. Yeah. Can feel like. Mm-hmm. He's a good athlete. He's sure. got decent first level form on his technique and on his game. But it seems like he's waiting for his opponent to come to him and make a big mistake so that he can punch. Yep. And like I say, that's just that's not, you know, that's not what modern MMA gyms should be teaching. It is ripe. It's ripe to be overwhelmed by a more. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the top of end of this sport is full of of a certain type of fighter right now and it is busy and it is front foot and it is pressure heavy um on the flip side oki uh seems like a fighter who probably came to mma through something else mm-hmm. or maybe a little later in life he certainly only turned pro in the last five or six years, and he's only 28. So, you know, that's that's not a lot. Or that that's a uh, getting into your 20s with before entering a sport. Uh, and he's also a counterfighter, but he does it all off the front foot. And he does it with what seems to be, I think, a little bit more nuanced yeah. idea of how to strike and how to kickbox. Could also just be the, the kind of training you'd get in an MMA gym in Belgium, I think he lives. Yeah. Where, yeah. like, yeah, those are all kickboxers. Exactly. He, lo- he looks like somebody who had some Dutch kickboxing training. He's got the tight combinations. He's got a jab. He's got the low kicks. Yep. And it's it's aggressive, despite the fact that he, he he likes to counter. He's he puts positional pressure on his opponents. Yeah. So you know, on the on the surface of it, you've got a counterfighter versus a counterfighter. Yeah. Not a great setup for a fight at all. But at least you do have back foot versus front foot, mm-hmm. which 
I I might pick Oak. Well, I mean, if they were both just going to sit in space and counter, I don't know. Kwamba might be the better prepared fighter to do something else. Yeah. Might be. I don't know. But especially with this dynamic, I got to pick Oki to just draw out the first reaction from Kwamba yeah. by pressuring. I'm definitely inclined to take Oki, and and for reasons that will surprise no one, uh, he has a good jab. Yeah. And if you're the guy who's by default going to be more happier coming forward, and your opponent is likely to let you, and he's going to wait to counter, and you like to counter, but not given an opportunity, you will initiate with and, and poke and prod with a quick, decisive jab, mm-hmm. taking you. He's going to have... Yeah more initiative, more opportunities to get a read on uh, Kwamba's counters, and yeah, just take the guy who comes forward and jabs. Yeah, it it says something to me that uh, if you look over Kwamba's record, you know, there there are a lot of decisions against poor competition in there. Yeah. And you watch him fight, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, I... I I, get it. I can see it. I get it. And Oki is a fighter who just seems like he goes out there and finishes people. Yep. He's had a couple decisions on his on his record, but a lot of violent first round finishes as well. Yeah, and and that's that's without being a guy who like rushes and goes ape shit. Yeah. He's just a much sharper, more uh, assertive striker. Yep. So Oki is the pick. He is a big favorite. Opened at minus 252. It's currently at minus 299. Uh, oh, no, that was over Hadjavik. That's right. That's the other thing worth noting. Oh, Kwamba's a short notice replacement. Kwamba came in on very short notice. He just won a fight a couple weeks ago down a division. So he is also... He's I got to say, actually, o- Oki versus Hadjavik would have been a much more interesting fight. He's yeah, uh, Kwamba's not actually small, a lot smaller. He's only one inch shorter with two a two inch reach, uh, giving up two inches of reach. Mm-hmm. Oki himself is not a big lightweight. Yeah, though so it looks but, like he's got he's got reach. Yeah, I don't know what his dimensions are. I would guess he's got a really long wingspan. He's he's at, only credited with a seventy four inch reach. But he's five ten. But he's five ten. So those yeah. are those are long arms for his height. Yeah, a seventy three inch reach. So I definitely, um, yeah, I'm picking Oki. I don't think we have any odds for this fight yet, and uh, but I expect that he'll be a pretty solid favorite whenever they whenever those odds drop. Yeah, he was already going to be a favorite over a much more seasoned fighter. So yeah, and. Um, yeah, rough rough entry to the UFC for Kwamba, mm-hmm. who at least if uh, the contender series to be believed, this is sort of a like, you know, finally getting the goal he's been aiming for for like 16 years for him, mm-hmm. and uh, I feel a little bad because it's probably going to go really badly for the the first introduction. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, 
moving right along. That brings us to a women's strawweight fight. Loma Lukbunmi, Bruna Brazil. And, um, yeah, there's always it. I mean, when, with Loma Lukbunmi, there's always a chance that she's just going to gonna lose a random fight, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. She's just tiny. She's tiny, and there are some elements of her style that just still just don't quite click. She's tiny. It, it, it has to be said, she's tiny, and she has a game that works best when she can fight long. Yeah, like she, she. I mean, she is a like a true tie fighter. Like, yeah. Don't don't believe anyone who tells you anything uh, about uh, like Muay Thai being like an eight limbed sport, and like take that as a given. The vast majority of Muay Thai fighters are kickers. Mm-hmm. That's the game. Like kicks score very highly. Being able to deliver strong, balanced kicks. Being able to stand there and strongly block a kick. Or evade a kick. Like these things count for a lot in Muay Thai. Loma Lukman me is a kicker. Yep. Um, she has the clinch skills, of course. That's the other, yep. it's like the second biggest part of MMA. That is hurt when you are much smaller than your opponent. Yep. You need a very particular kind of clinch game. Like like um Sanchai has a short man's clinch game in Muay Thai, which is like he's like a big he's big on like body locks. Mm-hmm. Um and underhooks and stuff. He has a more like in your chest kind of style of clinching. Um, I'm not sure that Loma's clinch game was developed for people who are like much bigger than her, possibly. But yeah, I think she's getting there. Yeah, um, she's but, developing her grappling to go to 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 complement that as well. Yeah, like I think the fight she had at the least read was a really great look at what is de- developing and great about Loma Lukbunmi and how she's trying to adjust her her game to be more MMA. Yeah. And exactly why it's so damn difficult. Yeah. She went out there and she tried to get in on Elise Reed and hit a trip takedown, like a body lock clinch takedown uh, early on. And Reed just fell on top of her. Yep. And beat her up for the rest of the round. And you could see that Loma Lukbunmi came back to her corner and she was just pissed at herself that she left that let that happen. Yep. And she went out there and she came in the second round and she tried it again. And this time she did the, the trip takedown right. And she wound up on top and then she dominated. But what if it had gone wrong again? <laughs> and she yeah. just doesn't have the so- the size and strength or exactly. the depth of skill to for one mistake not to just decide the round. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of that, yeah, she's got her striking game also is not perfectly suited for MMA. Like uh-uh. she's big on the kicks. Like a lot of TIE fighters, doesn't do a lot of fainting doesn't do a lot of like putting combinations together with the hands. Her boxing defense is just quite bad without the big gloves to rely on. And, um, so yeah, she's just, um, she's just limited by a lot of factors while clearly being a really technically skilled fighter in her, uh, specialties. Yep. Um, Bruna Brazil, 
not really uh i mean i i kind of like bruna brazil to be honest like you know what i think i like about her she has the exact opposite of the face that drinkus duplessis makes whenever anything happens <laughs> you know drinkus is like ooh, ooh. Yeah, he's, like, yeah. he's got spooked face. Yeah, he's got time. Scooby-Doo face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's doing like double takes and stuff when punches are coming at him. Yeah, Bruno Brazil is like ice cold, makes no facial changes whatsoever, mm-hmm. uh, unless it is to like do an evil smile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's. I, I like her demeanor, and uh, you know, it's not it's not an illusion. Like she is actually pretty comfortable with the idea of like letting somebody run at her and nailing them with a counter. She's got some right ideas. She's also got a lot of just gaps Yeah. in her striking and is very so, much one and done. It's a very uh, reach insulated. That very much so. Yeah. And um, yeah. And you can see anytime she's drawn into any kind of exchange that the, the depth is not there. Um, but this could still just be a fight where Loma Lukbenmi like messes up a takedown and just gets out grappled because Bruno Brazil's bigger than her. Yeah, significantly bigger than her. Yeah, five inches. Yeah. So I'll pick Loma, better fighter. Yeah, but uh, not perfect even given that, and will always struggle because of the size. Yep. Yeah, it is just one of those things where Lukbumi should be able to compete with Brazil uh, to some degree at Brazil's preferred range. Yeah. Just being such a practiced kicker that even giving up the reach, uh, Lukbumi should be pretty comfortable like catching and countering kicks mm-hmm. and uh, hitting teeps and, and things like that that can... Uh, make up for the lack of hand distance range. Yeah, this but, is actually this is going to be more forgiving uh, for her tendency to do a lot of kicks and otherwise a lot of single strikes. Because yeah, exactly. Brazil herself is not a combination puncher. Yeah, and then she will have to worry about you know when she tries to reach for the clinch or tries to step in and throw one two, her head is right on line and Brazil is going to be able to hit her. Yep. And uh, but then beyond that, like I'm, I'm willing to bank on, uh, Luke Bunmi's clinch game being good enough that she can take Brazil out of her element when the fight is anywhere other than range. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then we'll get a very close and weird fight. Yep. So. Yeah, I'll take Loma Luke with me as well, but the UFC really just kind of needs an atom weight division. Pretty much. Should be uh, should be her versus uh, Sohi Ham for the atom weight yep. title, you know? Exactly. All right, Luke Bunmi is the favorite here. Opened at minus two fourteen. It's currently minus two seventy two. Those odds getting wider. Brazil opened at plus one eighty eight. Is currently at plus two thirty four. That brings us to a light heavyweight bout. Devin Clark, Marcin Prachnio. Mm, don't you just get a good feeling in your chest when you 
look at those two names next to each other, you just know this is going to be good. Just, you know, like, what what do we need Daniel <laughs> Marcos versus Ari Keelang down here on the prelims? These tiny little bantamweight men who can barely hurt one another. Yeah, they're pussies, basically. Yeah, yeah, just just little tiny sissy men. <laughs> um, when we Pre, have... Pre-workout regimen Charles Atlas over here. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, 105-pound wimps. That's right. When we could get real, honest, top-quality beef <laughs> men like Devin Clark and Marcin Prachnio, you know, men made of beef and wheat germ. That's right. This is this is superb athleticism. This is the pinnacle, and you can tell because they're bigger. <laughs> That's how you can tell. That you can tell. Um, somebody yeah, this, legitimately, can I tell you? Somebody legitimately hit me with the um, with that remark on a recent Heavy Hands episode, where I was like, "Oh my god, these guys are so much worse than the bantamweights." And they're like, "Oh, but they would beat the bantamweights. So how are they worse?" <laughs> like somebody literally did not had not yet encountered the concept of pound for pound skill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like and i gotta think that is just a very common way of thinking among uh your uh, your casual masses that like that's why people love heavyweights because mm-hmm. i just feel like well the heavyweight could beat me up yeah it is true i'm only willing to think that about somebody who's much much bigger than me yep um so yeah otherwise you know, being real, this is a hilariously booked fight between two dudes who absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna typify, say have, have problems. <laughs> they typify light heavyweight, which is yeah. they have a severely undercooked game. Yeah. But marry that to enough raw horsepower and enough fragility. Yeah, that they could literally just blow up their opponent or get blown up themselves at any mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. That is really what like middleweight. Sure, they're weird guys, but they're all still like your typical MMA tough and uh, not. You know, they're they're getting powerful, really powerful, but they're not yet like freaky power powerful at middleweight. Light heavyweight is a division for all the guys who would be the most exciting heavyweights. Yeah. And frankly, the UFC and MMA as as a whole should literally just have 205 be the heavyweight limit. Mm-hmm. Really? Pretty like, much. 205 and up. That's, it just, should just be that. 205 is really – it's for the guys who would be the most exciting heavyweights but don't have the durability. That's it. Or, well, they can, you know, afford to cut the weight. Like, Yeah, they can afford to cut the Plenty of them would go in there and nuke heavyweights with better sure. chins just by hitting way harder and being way faster. But they can afford to cut the weight, so they go to 205. Yeah. But heavyweight is where the guys end up who are, like, so durable that they can get nuked and then come back and punch somebody. Yeah. And these are the guys, the guys that end up at light heavyweight are the guys who can't take the comeback. Yeah, their their brain stems alone aren't strong enough to keep them going. Exactly. When they get hit clean on the chin. Um, 
yeah, basically, Marcin Prochnio should be a lot better than he is. But his confidence issues have caused him all kinds of trouble. And he is kind of climbing out of it. Kind of. But I mean, he's he's been pretty solid since his first turnaround. I would say he's he became a lot calmer. He adjusted his game a little bit. Yeah, um, I still see him in a fight again. That fight against like Vitor Petrino or the fight against William Knight. Of course, yeah. Where it's just like he's just trying not to have to stand in. He can do good athletic, violent things when he gets lots of his own time and space, but he's trying not to have to stand in front of somebody and take a shot. Yeah. It's, and, it's good for him. His, his earlier yeah. response to, to the, to the anxiety was to go Drikus mode. Yeah. We will forever remember the Sam oh. Alvin fight. Oh my. Where he just literally ate one punch three times in a row. I, I have never seen a fight where somebody tried harder to make the opponent knock them out. Yeah. Than that fight. He really insisted on it several times. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You got to sleep me, pal. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> we both know why we're here. It's like the cow handing you the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Just chasing. <laughs> So now he's running away. A cow is just chasing him with the with the captive bolt gun. Yeah, take it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you to. wanted the burger? Come on, <laughs> eat me. Yeah, but uh, no, he's definitely he's you know plateaued, I suppose. But he's, yeah. he's certainly much better than he was then because he turned that panic into caution. Yes, and caution and is a is a good thing. Devin Clark has never really known caution or how to fight panic <laughs> even. Yeah. He's never really learned anything as far as I can tell. The funny thing with Devin Clark is too, he actually, unlike most other light heavyweights, he is durable enough to be yeah. a heavyweight. Yeah. He's got a crazy chin, but he just doesn't really know. I mean, he just goes out there and he just tries to press his physicality on people. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you said uh, in the main card, Vivi, that, uh, that, you know, you, you're not like a, you're not totally thinking about skill as the primary factor mm -hmm. uh, when you're breaking down fights. Devin Clark is the exception that proves the rule. If you're going to argue that skill is not important. Yeah. I know you didn't say it's not important at all. It's no, not no. the most important. It frequently gets over overridden, and I agree. But Devin Clark is a man without a skill set. Yeah, he still wins half the time. Exactly, yeah. So obviously physicality counts, but every single fight is 10 times harder than it should be. Yes. Because he has never been taught, like, the moves. Yeah. Doesn't know how to jab. He's got no defense. He doesn't really have a good wrestling game. Like, he is technically bereft. He has and, a power uh, wrestling game. Yeah, yeah. And he's got power. And the big thing for him is that he's just he has trained himself so that he can do all the things he wants to do, even when he's really tired. Yeah, and he's a great athlete. He's super he's durable. Athlete. He's yeah. a little small for light heavyweight, but otherwise he's physically perfect for the division. He just 
he is a great example of like, oh, that's when like skill is important. Yeah. Because yeah. Devin Clark with with a moderately <laughs> advanced skill set would probably be a very good fighter yeah. given his physical qualities. Absolutely. As it is, he is like the icon of a middling light heavyweight because he just hasn't learned anything and he hasn't improved at all since he's yep. been in the UFC, which is now what, like six, seven years or more? Yeah, I mean, been here a while. Got to, he got to the UFC in 2016. Wow, so longer than that. Years. Yeah, I, I was talking about this recently. The UFC has really created a class, a middle class of fighter that did not used to exist. Yeah. Uh, especially not in the UFC where it would be like, oh, you've you've lost twice, you get cut. You won five in a row. They were kind of boring. You lost once, you're out. You know. That used to be the way the UFC ran. And now there is space where, like, you can have a six-fight contract and go two and four. And the UFC will be like, yeah, but we still need you. Yep. And in fact, you know, Devin Clark is two and four in his last six fights. Um, That's it. I'm going to pick Devin Clark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because he does not know how to be cautious, and he is tough. And Marcin Prachnio knows too much of caution. Yeah. Maybe maybe Prachnio will pick him off. I mean, he certainly has the skill. I, I am actually going to take Prachnio. Yeah. Uh, because Devin Clark has no skills. And sure. he's going to lumber around. He's not going to respect range. He doesn't know what range is. Yep. Um, he is certainly going to put a scare in Procneo on more than one occasion. Yep. But uh, Procneo is also going to do everything he can to keep Devin Clark at a range where Clark has literally no moves at all to rely on. Yeah. And he's going to rack up attrition on him. The only kind of damage that could possibly matter in a Devin Clark fight you're not going to crack his chin. No. You can literally knock out five of his teeth and he will still be fighting. But you chip away at his legs. You poke him in the belly with the front kick. Um, you work him with a clinch knee and then try to break. These are all things that Procneo likes to do. And I think they could just basically keep him slightly ahead for enough of the fight to pick up a decision. Yeah, I think I think he, it could easily happen. I'm just willing to, you know... I think this is where Procneo's fragility and his inability to yeah. uh, take the fight to his opposition because of that fragility, the learned caution. Yeah. I just think this is where these are the kind of fights where the rubber just keeps meeting the road for him. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. I'll take the uh, chipping away, careful approach over the guy who only has three techniques and has never put two of them together back to back once. Yeah. Very fair. Clark opened at minus 171. He's currently down at minus 213. And Procneo opened at plus 152. He's currently up at plus 187. That's way too wide on this fight. Yeah. These are dudes who uh you know Procneo has had some some more devastating knockout losses. Yep. 
But when he wins, he feels like a fighter who is able to actually consistently do things that are winning. Yeah, his wins are are pretty clean, you know? Yeah. He just uh, he has an ability to control the pace of the fight that uh, a lot of light heavyweights don't. Yeah. And Clark is always just running the razor edge of... I am forcing the hardest fight I can. I might win it. Yeah. Who knows? He just looks miserable for every second of his fight. It's like it's, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's just guessing the whole time. It's remarkable. He has just endured this tortured existence in in the octagon for as long as he has without even accidentally improving. (laughs) I don't, I don't get it. You, You do have to wonder if at the, like, Right before he goes out for every fight, he tries to like bolt and run out of the run out of the arena. And his dad makes him go in there. Yes, and it's only yeah. like the the booming voice of his father. Yeah, that is just like stopping him dead in his tracks every yeah. time. And then he turns not so around. fast, you little bastard. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, I, I do have a feeling about um, when I see Devin Clark and his dad, I always think of um, the boxer, Sean Porter, mm-hmm. who also had his dad as a coach. And Sean Porter is a much better, more sophisticated fighter than Devin Clark ever could be. Sure. But by the standards of elite boxing, Sean Porter is really an athletic bully who, like when he loses, it's because the opponent is subtle. Mm-hmm. and crafty and Sean Porter will just keep running head first into the problem until he knocks himself out. Uh, really relies on being tough and being a, just a great athlete and being like, yeah, pretty unbreakable, but people outfox him. And yeah, that's how I feel about Devin Clark and his dad. Like, would this guy not maybe be better if like, he didn't have like the key male father figure in his life as his actual coach and trainer where he like, you just get yeah, the feeling or, that he'll just do he, whatever they say and have like this implicit trust that like maybe a little bit of suspicion would be warranted that like, are there things I could be learning that I, you know, I just spent my whole career being exactly the same guy. That's the case with Sean he, Porter too. Maybe he'd be off teaching kindergarten or something. Yeah. He just wouldn't you be know? a fighter at all. Yeah. Like that's the kind of the sense I get. Is it like, if he if it weren't for his father pushing him, he'd be he a gentle, be, yeah, functioning member of society. Yeah, yeah. That, that honestly, Sean Porter, smart guy. He might have been the same case where like yeah. without his father pushing him to be a boxer and turning into a really good one. But yeah, he probably would have been like a a teacher. Seems like a good fit. I bet he would have been a good yeah. teacher. All right, that brings us to a welterweight bout. Jeremiah Wells, Max Griffin, and like, Mm -hmm. this is a good, this is a good fun. This is a, a perfectly booked mid tier welterweight action fight. Yeah. This is going to be a fun mess. Yes. Uh, Max Griffin, a sort of marching procneo type. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that he's got a, you know, there's sort of a, a, a fairly thin veneer of technical fighter uh, pasted on top of the guy he sort of really is, which is like an athletic brawler. 
Yeah, the, both Prochnio and Griffin, although Griffin doesn't have the durability issues at all, but no, both Prochnio and, and Griffin came to MMA through uh, very, I, very strict, like, traditional martial arts training. And um, to different in different disciplines for Prochnio was karate. And for Max Griffin, I can't remember what it was. Let me see. He was probably a karate or a taekwondo guy or something. It was some weird like homebrew martial arts. Kempo or something like that. Yeah, it was. Uh, Bok Fu. Oh. And Mar- Mara Noble's fighting system. Oh. Yeah. And a first degree black belt in kickboxing. So some really, truly fake shit. Yeah. Some real <laughs> homebrew. Buck foo. Yeah. That's a, that's a sautéed broccoli dish. <laughs> that's not a martial art. So, but the, the point being that, like, you know, I think in that th- this is what why it's like there's this veneer of technique that has been pasted over what would otherwise just be sort of an athletic brawler. Yeah, because what happened with both these guys, I think, is they had these – you know, like semi-functional striking arts. Yeah. And then they got into MMA and they realized that like, oh, like I didn't come up doing all this hard sparring and like a lot of this stuff is not really tested. Yeah. And they and they sort of fill in the gaps with toughness and yep. ferocity. And yeah, for Griffin, I mean, it, it's just kind of, it's always been kind of remarkable how well he's made it work. Yeah, well, he because he's not a dumb guy like he's no. he's clearly coachable and he learned pretty early on in his UFC career that he could make it pretty far with this uh pretty uh meat and potato skill set he developed with just a little strategy mm-hmm. like he discovered that it's worth it to like or somebody on his team discovered and he was wise enough to listen to them that it's worth it to look at the opponent and and tailor your uh, your basic game in a couple ways. So he's he is genuinely like a pretty flexible fighter. He yeah. can he can uh, mold himself to a lot of different game plans. He uh, also has pretty, a lot of trouble sticking with. Yeah, like and, the, and, the, the Mike Perry fight was sort of a great yes moment for Max Griffin, where he just copied the game plan that had already worked against Mike Perry. Yeah. Multiple times. And I think probably it really helped that Mike Perry is such a determined, I will fight you one way. I will give you one obvious problem. All you have to do is solve it over and over and over again. Kind of fighter that like he really stuck with a game plan for that fight. For a lot of other fights, though, they're often marked by Max Griffin doing exactly the right thing for a little while. Yeah. And then being like, eh, I'm kind of, I don't know. Did that maybe that worked a little different that time. It didn't quite go like I thought it would there, or it didn't work right away. I'm going to back off and I'm going to try something else. Yeah. And I think that comes down to having a fairly shallow skill set. Yeah. Yeah. That like, uh, when he's forced to improvise, um yeah you just sort of see that like there's a lot of empty space there's not a lot of uh real like positional understanding mm-hmm. um fundamental skill in his game but uh you know hey credit to max griffin for being uh a student of the game nonetheless 
And then Jeremiah Wells is just like your classic, like meathead, just bash, bash, bash kind of fighter. <laughs> he yeah. just wants to run at people and smush them with his big blocky fists. Mm-hmm. Real classic old style wrestle boxer. Yeah, big time. Um, you know, I gotta say, it does feel a little bit like a problem for a guy like Jeremiah Wells that uh, Max Griffin has never been knocked out. Oh, he he got a TKO loss to Colby Covington, which was attritive. Yeah, that was just an accumulation. He was not knocked out. Uh, given that Jeremiah Wells' success is so heavily dependent on his power, like entirely dependent on his power, it's not impossible he could be the first guy I've ever seen to rock Max Griffin and put him away. But it is a hard thing to pick, uh, yeah. having never seen it happen. Wells does have the potential to submit as well, to get yeah. submissions. Like, he he has he very clearly has a practiced transition game out of his takedowns wants to take the back uh, against uh, Carlton Harris. He immediately went for like a Darth Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But it's also clear that he's really impatient. Yeah. With these things. So he has got a couple of rear naked chokes in his career. um, But usually against like his lowest level of competition. Because he'll try to rush the first submission, and if it doesn't work, he's going to alpha male style just kind of yeah. give up. And Griffin is also somebody who does not get submitted. Yep. That is another Griffin just part. doesn't get finished. He doesn't get finished, yeah. He's just really tough, really competitive all the time, surprisingly fast, surprisingly strong. But he also does... Guys that can punch hard yeah. consistently do – like that Mike Perry fight is great for him, but it is kind of an aberration where there are a lot of other fights that Max Griffin has had where he just tends to lose to bigger punchers. Yeah. Because it, it forces him to go too much into – like the sort of limited back foot pot shotting mode that he has access to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, 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 it's a weird thing of like being too smart for his skill set, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a procneo problem as well. Like he knows when to be cautious. That's a good impulse. Yeah. But how to keep winning when you're forced into caution is, oh. um, is tough. well. Wells is just going to go out there and do everything he can to win rounds. Like everything Wells does is geared towards this will keep me winning. Yeah. Low thought, high energy, yeah. high power aggression. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I guess I'll. I'm going to take Wells. I came in ready to take Wells. I'm going to take Wells to just land the bigger shots and get a tough decision for it. Okay. I'll, I'll take Griffin. Why not? Yeah. I, I, I want to take Griffin. I yeah. just, I get the feeling that he's running more easy as he gets old. He's 38 now. 
Yeah. Wells is 37, so but he, Wells is also clearly like if somebody had gotten to Wells earlier and yeah, or yeah, maybe yeah. maybe he just his impulse, you know, maybe there's no version of him that would have been better, more coachable. I don't know. Yeah. But Wells could have been a really like he's a superb athlete. Yeah. Clearly. Griffin's a good athlete, no question. Yeah. But uh yeah, Max Griffin is also surely an older 38 yeah. than Wells is 37 because we have had the supreme quality of his chin demonstrated to us many, many times. Yeah. He's like been Wells in been in wars. the game for, a, for 12 years, apparently, 11 years. Yep. But it's a pretty, like, it, it, it's, a, it's not that well-worn. He's mm-hmm. very clearly been fighting at a pretty low level for a lot of that not taking a lot of fights for a lot of that. And he still appears to be a pretty fresh, uh, you know, physical specimen mm-hmm. where Max Griffin is starting to look a little worn, you know? Yeah. I'm still going to take him, even though yep. like, it seems probably like this fight is just going to slip out of his control, uh, multiple times. Yep. And Wells is going to make a good effort at overwhelming him. I, I don't know. I haven't seen yeah. Griffin knocked out. I don't Wells... think Griffin will get finished. So I think we're headed towards a, a, split, a decision where we're t- saying like, oh, Griffin, you know, really worked his jab that round. Or he was on the front foot for a round and really beat Wells up. Then you're look, talking about like, oh, Wells like took Griffin down three times that round and really slammed him but didn't control him. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about a, a round where like Wells mashes Griffin to the cage for a round. And you're like, I don't know. How do I score that? Uh-huh. You know? I, I assume it's just going to end up pretty messy. Yep. That seems like the only safe call. Wells open at minus 201 is currently at minus 147. And Griffin. Opened at plus 178 is currently at plus 132. Yeah, odds on that should just be close. Griffin has lost many times to many different fighters. Wells has a game that is supremely limited, and it says nothing good about him that he came out and started dominating Carlston Harris and let Carlston Harris back into that fight. Yeah, that is that, that's kind of why I'm especially cautious. Like, Wells just so one track mind like yeah is it is a time when some breaks would be helpful yeah that that said the other reason that i'm willing to still bank on wells is that griffin is not himself a good finisher yes yeah, true he can catch some catch people with some heavy shots sometimes but most I mean, of the when time when was his last finish he knocked out kinan song kinan in oh, that's right that's 2021 right. And then he exploded Rami's Brahimaj's ear. Yeah. But otherwise, then you're going back to Eric Montano in 2016. Yep. And there's a lot of splits and majority decisions in there. Like, yeah, just really doesn't, uh, isn't very good at um, putting himself ahead, clearly. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a light heavyweight fight. Zach Pauga, Bogdan Gushkov. And um, 
Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is you. <laughs> okay, Zach Pauga. Yeah. I'm just taking Zach Pauga. Yeah, he's just better. Gushkov is the kind of fighter where you watch him box for a minute when he's in control. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I've seen you. You've learned some some slick technique. That looks all right. Uh-huh. And then you see him the moment the fight gets taken out of his control at all. And you're like, okay, you're not used to anything else. You no pushback is comfortable for you. Yep. Pauga's yeah, game is. Sorry. He, he's like, um, uh, who's the uh, the hot guy from Adesanya's camp? Carlos. Uh, oh, oh yeah, Carlos Olberg. Yeah. He's but, like perpetually stuck in that very first prospect loss of Olberg's. Yes. But even it's a little more marked that he like. Yeah. Wilbur at least had to be made to gas in that fight before he really fell apart. And it's also notable, like, oh, he's had three times as many fights to be in the same place as Olberg was in that fight. Yeah. And he's I'm pretty sure we talked about this when we 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 previewed his first UFC fight. He was doing a good amount of can crushing. Yeah. A lot of can and a very can crushing style. Yeah. Very much the I watched a couple Roy Jones Jr. videos. Yeah. Style of fighter. Even when on the record, they don't look like hands. You can watch a lot of his fights. You're like, oh, this dude is two weight classes smaller than him. Or folds the moment they get hit once. Yeah. And Pauga, yeah, his game is severely limited. And it's not at all good that he let uh, Modestus Bukowskis off the hook. Yeah. To lose a decision in that fight. But he's at least stays durable and consistent in what he does well. Mm-hmm. So, yep, he's a he's a meat and potatoes enough fighter. Yeah. To uh, to pick him here. Gushkov is the underdog. Opened at plus one thirty seven. Is currently plus one eleven. Pauga opened at minus one fifty two. Is currently minus one twenty two. That's that's fair. Neither of these guys should be trusted with anything. All right, that brings us to a featherweight bout. Hyder Emil versus Fernie Garcia. Yeah, I um I kinda I kind of like Hyder Emil's game. Yeah, it's all right. I what I like about it is that um this is a this is a guy we see a lot of MMA fighters who um, trick themselves into clinch fighting mm-hmm. because they like overextend or like they know aggression is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they corner their opponent and then they, they just like, they end up in the clinch without really meaning to. And for a lot of fighters, that is either a point for them to rest or um, it is something that just like lets the opponent off the hook. Yeah. Or it's both. What I like about Emil's game is he's really aggressive with his striking, but he gets into the clinch as if he actually wants to be there. Mm-hmm. The aggression continues into the clinch. He reminds me of there was another fighter who I feel like made a UFC debut in the last, you know, six months or so, but I can't, um, I can't bring the name to mind now. But but I I like the, uh, the fact that his aggressive game actually flows across. Oh, was it yep. Francis Marshall? I don't think it was Frank Marshall. Okay. Um, but that's a that's another pretty good example of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it looks like he actually wants to be there when he winds up in mm-hmm. the clinch. The, the 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 flow continues. He's got a whole host of clinch takedowns. He's a pretty mean clinch striker. He's really aggressive with the head position and the and the pressure uh, in the tie-ups. Um, he just looks like a pretty well-equipped, like modern young MMA fighter. He's very yep. very aggressive in every phase, and the phases connect to each other. Takes a lot of damage getting yes. it all done. Yes. Um, really just, walks into a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, he really does. And, you know, it's both a, a bad sign and to his credit that he, it just doesn't change the way he approaches the fight. Yeah. Which breaks a lot of opponents. Yeah. Uh, the dude he fought on the contender series, who I was certain first time I watched it, I, I, I had not watched Hyder Amelia. yet. Yep. And I was like, okay, that's a name that could be like, I don't know, somewhere from the Caucasus or something. And I look at the guys and I'm like, oh, this dude has a beard with no mustache. That's Hyder Emil. Yeah, no. But no, that was the other guy. <laughs> he just had the the Chechen facial hair. I, uh, basically, I'm not at all surprised that for as you know, interesting a uh, aggr- for as, as like continuous and aggressive style as Emil has, that he has two split decisions in yeah. his his young career. And yeah, and it's probably just from walking into a ton of shots and the fight getting really ugly. And and he walks into takedowns, too. Yep. And he just he gets forced to scramble with people all the time. It's, yeah, you know, and nothing I think is so set with him. Like his wrestling and grappling are not so polished that no, he really he, controls anything on. the He's ground. a real pace fighter. Yeah. Um, But uh I think that'll work against Fernie Garcia. Yeah. Garcia is an anti-pace <laughs> fighter. He's working outside the meta with a pretty limited boxing game. Very reactive. Not uh, not powerful at all. No. Just ends up fighting from behind and trying to counter. Yep. And in a pretty limited fashion. And... He, too, Not, goes to a lot of split decisions, and then the UFC has just gotten outworked by everybody, including somebody like Journey Newsom. Yep. Who does not outwork a lot of people. No, anyone, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just too easy to drive Garcia into the fence, too easy to overwhelm him with volume and, and force him to be the one to take the first backward step. Yep. And then in the clinch, he, he just kind of gets tossed around by stronger <laughs> fighters. So. Yeah, his upright boxing style really... Yeah, he does not get it, set him up for a good base to defend wrestling or clinches or anything beyond that. Like his grip fighting just isn't very good. Yeah. Like, yeah, that that fight with Nakamura, he ended up in some protracted clinches. There was one particular takedown where it was like a like a poor man's suplex. He just like Nakamura just felt his balance off. And even though Garcia had like an overhook and an underhook, he just got picked up off his feet and thrown head over heels. Like, yeah. Uh, or heels over head as the case was. And, um, it's just not a particularly good wrestler. No, not, he does, doesn't have a very good feel for MMA. Yeah. really seems like the kind of guy who like bare knuckle boxing might be where you, you <laughs> want to be honestly. I get the sense he'd probably rather be a boxer, but he probably yeah. just didn't, you know, e- either it just doesn't appeal to him because it's, you know, for whatever reason, or he just didn't actually cut it with the boxers. Yeah, I mean, that would be my first guess is that he's a boxer, wasn't good enough to be a boxer, which is why then I think 
bare knuckle seems to be where those guys are starting to land more and more frequently with more and more success. Yeah. Like guys like Mike Perry are suddenly like yeah. a bare knuckle star, you know? Even though I hate bare knuckle as a concept, they should have actual bare fists. Yeah, I, they really should. You're just making, you're just making gloved boxing bloodier. Yep. That's not at all the intention. It's, it's a stupid. The way they're doing it is stupid. I absolutely agree. You should not be able to have a cast on each hand when you're no. in in so-called bare knuckle fights. No. All right. Uh, Emil is the favorite here. Opened at minus 181. Is currently minus 191. Garcia opened at plus 161. Is currently at plus 170. That brings us to a bantamweight bout, the second best bout on the prelims. Yep. Daniel Marcos, Ari Chulang should not be opening up the prelim card. Honestly. Who knows why it's here? Honestly. Marcos, Chilang, and Wells Griffin should be main card fights. For sure. Yeah. Take Potieria Breshek off there. Take Johnson Flowers off there. That one, at least Michael John, at least Michael Johnson has he he's he's got enough seniority to deserve some prominence. Sure, but you know, make him a featured prelim. Still, yeah, I mean, Johnson Flowers sake, should be the featured prelim. Yeah, in fact, just make Jack Hermanson and Joe Pfeiffer the curtain jerker. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But Marcos uh, Chilang, really fun yeah. fight. Yeah. And um, yeah, what are you what are you thinking? Oh, wait, no, I guess it's me. This is you. What this is hell? me. You made uh, me talk about Fernie Garcia first, and now... I know, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, Archie Lang, we've talked a bit about it, how he is like a counter-combination puncher, and he's aggressive. Mm-hmm. He, he's an aggressive counter-combination puncher. He really wants to stalk you down, find a couple of strikes, and then get in there and mix it up. Mm-hmm. He's not the most durable guy doing that out there. And he offers uh, up his hips a lot as he does it, because it's a very aggressive pocket style. It's going to let people take you down. Yep. But he's actually a tough fighter to out grapple and submit. Good scrambler. Shockingly good scrambler. Shockingly tough fighter to submit. And uh, he just took Johnny Munoz's lunch money. Yep. No surprise there. I do worry, though, how he's going to do with Daniel Marcos. Mm -hmm. Because Marcos is just a really solid meat and potatoes. I will meet your pressure with solid technical basic answers over and over again kind of fighter i wish daniel marcos was more solid yeah the the fight with davy grant like i was somebody who thought a lot of people were upset with that decision i recall yeah and i was someone who thought no i think marcos has a pretty good uh pretty good claim to picking up those rounds at the same time I was frustrated with his choices the entire fight. Yeah. Where uh, it was a classic case of 
his most simple ideas really working every single time he tried them. The low kicks kept mm-hmm. landing, the jab kept landing, and he was just routinely able to outmaneuver Davy Grant and just make him miss and circle around him. Um, but he kept thinking he had to do something more exciting. Yeah. And so he kept like switching stance and like loading up on big counters and over swinging and like all of these, none of these things worked any of the times he tried them. It was the only reason Davy Grant was in the fight and arguably winning the entire time. As I saw it was that Daniel Marcos just refused to continue beating him. Yeah. Even so it really speaks to his potential that he was able to stay just ahead. He was able to land a ton of jabs he did not get overwhelmed or freaked out by any of the goofy shit Davy Grant likes to do. Yeah, Grant is good at freaking people out. It was just, I think, immaturity as a fighter. Yep. You know, that he he clearly has room to develop and learn the sort of patience and discipline to stick to his fundamentals. Even without that level of maturity, I still thought it was fine that he won that fight. And, and that's a good win. Yeah. A very, very good win. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think... Archie Lang can perhaps he can make this a little more difficult than Grant did in some ways. Yeah. Just by being a more process driven mm-hmm. uh, technical striker. But he's also not as durable as Grant. And he doesn't have as much variety of ways to take a fight to you as Grant. Or he's not going to yeah. try to take as many different kinds of fight as to you as Grant. And I think that, I think that Marcos's style, like even if he does make some of the same mistakes he made against Davy Grant, I think he's just going to get a lot more chances to go right back to the things that work well. Yeah. And probably just stay ahead in this one. Yeah. I, I will take Marcos as well. Again, the, the fact that I could be really frustrated with his decision-making for an entire fight, and still it was enough for me to think he beat a, yeah. a tough, experienced fighter in Davy Grant, who has a lot of great wins on his own uh, record, yeah. um, it says a lot. Marcos, you know, he's got good timing. He has He really pays attention to the distance between himself and his opponent. He doesn't give anything away for free. Like, he's pretty hard to hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because he's like a really great defensive technician, but he's attentive. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't give openings away and he looks to counter when you do chase the openings that he is offering. Um, he's really well equipped to just kind of stay ahead. I think against a lot, a lot of more limited fighters. I'm just waiting for him to like turn into a, a jab machine. I think it would take him. (laughs) It would do a lot for him. Yeah. And on the flip side, too, you got to look at R.H. Lang's record and realize that pretty much most of what he's beaten are fighters who don't really have a game to go to. Yeah. Guys who are athletic or tough or maybe just powerful, but don't really bring anything else yeah, to the cage. They're, just, they're ripe to get overwhelmed by his aggression. Yeah. And any fighter who's really been able to bring anything else, whether it's wrestling or grappling or striking, whatever, they keep finding ways to beat Aurichi Ling. Yep. So I'm going to take Marcos. 
Uh, odds on the fight. Marcos open at minus 205. It's currently minus 265. Orichi Lang opened at plus 163. It's currently plus 205. So pretty big odds in the favor of Daniel Marcos. All right, on that note, we are going to wrap things up. Unless you are a Substack, Substack subscriber, then we'll have just a little bit of bonus content for you, although I got to be running, so there won't be a lot. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection main card and prelims UFC preview shows, the sixth round post-fight show, the Show Money podcast, and the MMA depressed us.